want you to imagine that for years uh, you've been saving up for a, a treatment for a life-threatening disease. Scrimping, saving, putting money aside, devastated when events arose uh, which took those much-needed savings elsewhere. And then you'd have to start again and save. And you've been told by the pharmaceutical company um, that you, if you could get so much saved, they would supply you uh, with the treatment. The cost seems exorbitant. But it's the only business in town providing it. And you feel trapped, bound into to purchasing from them. Imagine discovering that the very treatment you were saving for, that this company don't in fact have a monopoly on it. In fact, they don't actually stock it. And then you discover that actually it's available for free. The product you need, the treatment you need is available freely. Someone else has paid for it and made it available at no cost. How do you feel? Imagine that now you watch other people in the same predicament but with far less resources scrimping and saving trying to get by on what little they have trying to purchase this life-giving necessity and you've discovered that it's freely available now how do you feel well i suppose you feel relief for yourself but you feel anger that you were delayed in this and that other people are being ripped off and taken advantage of. Well, in a sense, that's the heart of Luther's rediscovery. That salvation, that forgiveness, is free. Or it's by gift. That's what the word grace means, gift. By gift alone. That's what we're thinking about this evening. Martin Luther was a man who had been acutely aware of his guilt before God. Uh, he was petrified of dying unprepared. He had once been caught in a thunderstorm, and the lightning was crashing to the ground all around him, and he knew he wasn't ready uh, to die. And he, In his panic, he vowed to God, if you get me out of this, I'll become a monk. Although he had always wanted to become a monk, so it really wasn't a, a sort of a fair deal. It sort of took advantage of uh, the situation, and uh, Luther's father hadn't wanted him to become a monk. And so Luther made the most of the thunder and lightning, but he was petrified of death uh, and wanted to be ready, and this was the surest route to being ready. And so he began to slave and to work uh, at, his, at his salvation, confessing, obeying, doing, trying to pursue the gold standard of being right with God, or the Bible's word is righteousness. He knew God was righteous. He knew God demanded righteousness. The Bible kept saying it, but the more he chased, the more elusive it seemed. It was always one step ahead, just out of reach. And he was spending hours, literally hours, in the confessional box, driving his confessor nuts with the small details of his confessions. And then came a key moment. And uh, let me just give it in Luther's words. Um, he says, I've been captivated with understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. 
But up until then, a single saying in chapter 1. And the single saying was this. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This single saying stood in my way. For I hated the word righteousness of God. Which I have been taught to understand as God's justice. By which God in his righteousness punishes sinners. And though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. Then he says this, I did not love, indeed I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Startling admission, as if that one wasn't enough. He says, secretly I was angry with God, yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. What did he mean by this phrase? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Surely that's a frightening thing. It's not good news, which is what the word gospel means. And then Luther continues. He says, At last, as I meditated day and night on the words, the righteousness of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God was that by which the righteous person lives by the gift of God. In other words, the righteousness of God that has been revealed is not simply something God demands, but something God offers and gives. Luther continues, This immediately made me feel as though I had been born again and as though I had entered through open gates into paradise itself. From that moment I saw the whole face of Scripture in a new light. And now where once I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, I began to love and extol it as the sweetest of phrases. And this passage in Paul became the very gate of paradise to me. I hated the righteousness of God. I was secretly angry at God. Well, you would be if you thought that God was demanding a target, a standard that nobody could ever reach. And what happens if you find that what God is saying isn't saying isn't simply saying here's the standard you must reach, but He's saying I will meet that standard for you. That was a wonderful truth that was rediscovered by Luther at the Reformation. This is the Bible's great teaching. It lies behind our very word gospel, which means good news. Good news. The standard has been met. Righteousness is now on offer from God, not simply demanded by God. It lies behind probably one of the most favourite Bible stories, the parable of the prodigal son. It lies behind this story as well, and we want to look at it this evening. Three things I want us to see. First of all, really this, this story has four scenes. We're not going to look at one of them because it's really focused on the king of Israel and his mad panic because he thinks that the king of Aram is trying to provoke a war by asking him to work miracles and heal his general. He thinks he's being stitched up. Um, but we're going to look at the other three scenes that involve Naaman himself uh, and Elisha and Gehazi. So three, uh, three uh, things we want to see. First of all, grace undeserved. Grace undeserved. We're introduced to this character Naaman. 
in verses 1 and 2 and another glimpse in verse 12. And he doesn't come across particularly well. He's powerful, he's important, uh, and he knows it. Uh, He's full of himself. Uh, He's recently been on raids into Israel's territory and verse 2 conceals an ocean of misery. Uh, We read now bands of raiders from Aram had gone uh, out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. It's perhaps unlikely that they just went and captured one young girl. This one young girl that's mentioned is the focus uh, for this little part of the story. But it's more likely that they went in a raid and perhaps cleaned out an entire village of its children. Um, Think of those uh, Chibok girls, the 300 schoolgirls in northern Nigeria who were taken captive by uh, militant Islamic forces. Remember the, the anguish on their parents' faces. Remember the, 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 the fear and the, the sadness. Well, that's probably the sort of thing that happened here. This is, this is the name that we're speaking about. He's the guy that would have headed up such, uh, such an event. We learn too that Naaman has a, has a problem, that he is a leper. And he comes to Israel seeking help. And eventually he ends up with Elisha, uh, the preacher of God. And Elisha's servant conveys the message to Naaman that he's to wash in the Jordan. Not once, but seven times. We see another glimpse of Naaman. You see it there in, in verses 11 and 12 at the bottom of the page. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. A bit of the me monster about Naaman. Me, me, me. And then he says, Are not Abana and Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? He's furious on two counts that Elisha didn't come out to him. And what he was asked to do was below his dignity. And yet, this man is going to go home healed. This kidnapping, child-abducting, arrogant, petulant man is going to go home restored. Three things just to note here. Grace is undeserved kindness. This kidnapper and destroyer of families, this proud man, he's not an Israelite. He's not one of God's people, ethnically. He's not seeking or worshipping the true God like like some other people of, of different cultures and nationalities in the Bible that came looking for the God of Israel. He's not even doing that. In fact, if anything, he deserves judgment for his war crimes. What happens? He experiences rescue. It's grace. Kindness from God. It's an undeserved gift. That's grace. It's not deserved and it can't be earned. Naaman thought he'd be asked to do something great. Something befitting his awesomeness. Uh, Maybe he would contribute all of this gold and silver that he had brought and these fine garments. He would enrich either Elisha or the king of Israel um, or maybe he had skills. He was the, uh, a commander in the army, a general, the king's right-hand man. Was there an enemy in another border? Maybe the king of Israel might say, well, we're having trouble on our southern border. Could you sort that out? Gladly. 
Only if you'll heal me. What does he find? He's not asked to pay anything. In fact, he's not given an opportunity to do anything to earn his salvation. And he finds it immensely humbling. Verse 11 and 12 again. I thought he would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. This Jordan, this, this muddy old Jordan, you want me to bathe in it not once, but seven times? That's grotesque and repulsive. I'd rather not. It flows. The next stop in it is the Dead Sea. And you want me to bathe here in this river that flows into the deadness? It's, it's all the dregs of every other river that runs down the country. Oh, how humbling it was. You see, Chris is humbling because he can't earn it. It tells us we can't do anything. It tells us it doesn't matter who we are, what we've done, how much we've taught in Sunday school or BB or youth group or um, whatever we've done to impress or to to display our goodness and our kindness. We, We can't earn salvation and that's why people find this offensive. That's why Naaman found it offensive. And oh boy, was he offended. Yet the third thing we see is that this gift actually worked. This gift saved. Naaman's servants, fair play to them, they they talk him down from his colossal rage. And they say, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? If you've been told to give a million shekels, you would have done it. If you've been told to go and tackle those enemies in the southern borders, you would have done it. If you've been told to climb to the top of that great mountain that no man has climbed before, you would have done it. He says, go and wash and be cleansed. How much more then, when he tells you wash and be cleansed, and Naaman humbles himself, gets down, dips himself in the Jordan seven times, what does he find? It says, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy complete cure that blotchiness that had marred his face the white patches and blotches on his olive brown skin disappear the the lumps the nodules the, the scarring that had disfigured his face where perhaps an infection had set in and and rot and decay had started to to terrorize his flesh all gone. Imagine him going home. Imagine him at the head of the, the, the soldiers and the servants and they ride into Damascus and there he is in his great stallion and it's up through the desert and all of that. He'll have his turban on and uh, uh, you know, um, a piece of his turban acting as a, a dust guard across his face. Uh, and he, he comes up to the door of the house and, and the servants are used to, to not looking at him in the face because they, they, they don't want to see this, this leper and the scarring. And uh, his wife comes to the door expectantly and he throws down the, the, the scarf that's across his face and there it is, pristine. And his wife's eyes widen and she reaches out her hand to do what she hasn't been allowed to do for, for years and she touches his face. 
she caresses, caresses it and her eyes fill up. Maybe that wee servant girl's round behind her looking out, her eyes alight too, dancing and smiling. Her master has been completely restored. A complete cure. The blemishes that had marred his skin were gone. What a what a wonderful moment. You see, why does God give us this great picture? It's because this is a picture to teach us about the much greater rescue we all need. Leprosy is a great illustration of our sin. It's a disease that infects us, that is slowly killing us, that corrodes our character and eats at our souls. And here's a great picture of what salvation is. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But if we humble ourselves and go to God's place of cleansing, all the blemishes that mark and mar our lives, past, present, even future, they're gone. They're wiped off God's record. Note that this isn't simply an attitude of God that we can think, oh well, this God is kinder than I thought, that's great, I'll just mosey through life and when I finally meet him, he will of course forgive me of my sins. That's his job. He's kind. And of course, yes, I admit I don't deserve it. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. This grace, the word grace means gift. This kindness is a gift. A gift has to be accepted Uh, It has to be received. And so we need to do that. Naaman had to humble himself and go down to the river, the place that God had designated for his cleansing. He had to do that. And when he did what God said, he found that he was made clean. And likewise, we need to go to the place where God has designated for our cleansing. It's not a river. It's a cross where Christ came and died and took the punishment Isaiah says, although we had sinned, our sins were placed on him. And he was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But this is what salvation is. God's gift, God's grace is expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus and what he did at the cross. And if you were to to come this evening and say, this is what I need, and to say, yes, I'm like Naaman, and I need cleansing, I need forgiveness, then you could find with like Luther and Naaman that God is a God who cleanses. And like Luther, you could find That the righteousness of God, the cleansing of God, the being right with God is something he offers and not simply demands. What a gift. That's the first scene. Grace undeserved. The second scene deals with the second word in our title alone. Or I'm going to put it this way, grace undiluted. Grace undiluted. We're in scene two. Naaman returns. He wants to pay. For his healing, or do something so that he he feels that he has expressed his thankfulness 
And in some ways, that could be fine. Not the paying bit, but the expressing thankfulness. But he's met with with a strong refusal in verse 16. The strongest possible terms are used. Elisha takes an oath, as surely as the Lord lives. Whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Elisha persists in refusing because he's teaching Naaman and us a very important lesson. Picture it this way. Naaman gets on his horse or his chariot and goes back to Damascus. And the people see him. And he is perfect. His skin is flawless. His deformed limbs have have become whole again. And they say to him, Wow, the God of Israel is a powerful God. How much did you have to pay for this? And if Naaman says, Well, I gave the prophet, you know, uh, ten sets of clothing and all these uh, talents of silver, uh, and that, what impression does that give of the God of Israel? But imagine he goes back and says, Nothing. I didn't have to pay anything. He'll not believe it. The God of Israel healed me and I didn't have to pay a shekel. I didn't even, I took all this stuff. I would have paid. But I, he didn't want any of it. And that's because Elisha is teaching Naaman and us that God's salvation is free, it's a gift. It's a gift. It cannot be paid for. As God says to Job in Job 41.11, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. We can't pay God. We can't do anything to contribute to our salvation. We can't make it 50% us and 50% God. That's the message that had got lost by the 1500s. The church was teaching that God's kindness is packaged up on a whole elaborate system of you do this and you do that and you do the other. You go to confession, you, you attend church, you have your indulgences, all of these things. You do those and you'll be right with God. And then they said about grace. They did believe in grace, but for them grace was grace was like a turbocharger. You hadn't quite the oomph needed to be good enough. So you could ask God for grace. And that would turbocharge your goodness. Uh, It would be like Red Bull that would give extra energy to your obedience and your religious performance. It would soup you up enough to get you across the line. But you see, that's a mixture again of, of effort and and help from God. But as Martin Luther and the other reformers looked at this, they saw that couldn't work, that grace had to be alone. It had to be undiluted, untouched, unadulterated. And that's the message that we need uh, to hear again today. Sometimes I hear um, church-going people say, well, I'm just trusting Jesus and doing my best. Well, no, that's not going to work. Jesus is the one who said, 
it is finished. He's the one who's done it all. And the gift that he offers is that complete package of I've done everything needed to get you across the line. Everything. It's not a little bit you and all me. It's not all a little uh, 50% you and 50% me. I've done it all. Grace has to be alone because only Christ has done it all. Imagine that you've got some sort of toxic blood disorder and they're saying that, uh, that you need a complete blood transfusion and as it were your very veins and arteries have to be flushed out. So toxic is this blood disorder and somebody is found who's an exact match and they're going to slowly fill or feed their blood into your system uh, and enough blood from several people has been gathered together for this and their blood is clean we'll say. Imagine you come to this point and say, well, look, I'm perfectly happy with my blood. I think it's, it's fine. Just a little bit of his will do. It's not going to work, is it? And you say, well, what about 50-50? No, the toxicity in your blood is going to eradicate the benefit of their transfusion. Well, what about 95% theirs and 5%? No, no, you don't get it, sir. The toxicity in your blood is deadly. We've got to get rid of it has to be all or nothing. If we try to add to it, we take away from it. And that's what the reformers saw, that this gift of God is so rich and complete that if we try to add to it, we only take away. It would be a bit like me um, with my poor eyesight saying, I'll just add uh, a few lines to, to this Michelangelo masterpiece here. Um, to, to try and smarten it up a bit, polish it up a bit. Uh, or me, me, with my complete lack of musical ability, saying to a choir's conductor, excuse me, what you really need is for me to add my voice to this masterpiece, and that'll, that'll really give it an edge. Well, it would have people on edge, so it would. Um, but by adding, I'm actually taking away. The, the choral piece is complete. Da Vinci's and Michelangelo's masterpieces are complete. They don't add. They don't need someone to add anything to it. Grace has to be undiluted. And think what's lost when we dilute it with our efforts. We lose certainty. We lose certainty. That was one of the things that really troubled Luther. He wanted certainty. He wanted to know that when he died, he was sure of going to heaven. But if any of it lies with him, if the responsibility for the performance of what's needed to get to heaven lies with any of us, we can't have certainty because we could botch our part. And yet over and over again in the Bible we find that this gift brings certainty. Grace undiluted brings certainty. The Apostle John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have it. Certainty. Grace alone, grace undiluted also brings hope. What do you say to somebody who's on their deathbed who's filed up their life and realizes that they're going to meet God? And they realize that there's nothing that they can offer. It's too late 
to make good the wrong they've done. What do you say to them? Is there no hope? Well, grace undiluted brings hope because you're saying you can't do enough. You can't do anything. But it's all been done. Do you want what Jesus is offering? And so grace undiluted brings hope. Hope to the thief on the cross. Hope to somebody like the Apostle Paul who had gone so far as to arrest, torture and murder the followers of Jesus. Any wonder he loves this teaching about grace. Only that could give Paul hope. Only that can give us hope. Um, but just as we, as we note, just, just something to note before we leave this point and move to scene three. Um, grace undiluted is strong stuff. Sometimes there are an attitude amongst, uh, amongst church-going people that they say, well, yes, I, I, I put my trust in Jesus way back then. And you think, did you? Right, that's good. But then you look at their lives and it hasn't made a button of difference to their lives. And they say, oh yes, 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 I put my hand up in a meeting and I, I, I asked Jesus into my heart and that's it, done and dusted. It's like fire insurance. Uh, I'll, I'll call on that whenever I need to at the end of my days, but I'll just get on with living my life my way now. That's not the way it works because grace undiluted is powerful stuff and it changes those who accept the gift because part of the gift isn't just the... The cleansing of our dirty record. Part of the gift is the changing of our broken hearts and lives. Because part of the gift is the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us himself on the cross and gives us the Holy Spirit to change us. So this gift is powerful and we start to be transformed. And we see that even with Naaman. He's going back home to his own country. But he's, he's aware, hold on a minute, I'm the king's right-hand man, literally. So when, I, when he goes to the temple, I have to go to the temple because he's an old man. And when he bows, I have to bow with him. But he says to Elisha, well, God, mind, I don't really mean it when I'm bowing in the temple. You know, and Elisha, God will understand. He knows your heart. And then he also wants to take earth from Israel back because he... He still hasn't got everything figured out and he, and he figures this, this earth is, is part of Israel. It's God's land. It's God's place. And where I'm going is, belongs to another God and that's how the ancient people thought that God was territorial. And he's saying, well, if I go back to my country and I want to bow down to worship the, the real God, I don't want to do it on some other God's soil. You know, I want to, he hasn't got everything sorted out, but his heart is right. He's been changed. He wants to do all he can do to make sure that he's, he's giving his allegiance to this true God who's rescued him. You see, real grace is strong stuff. Cheap grace doesn't change anybody. But real grace does. So grace undiluted. And then finally um, and briefly... There's a third scene to the story. Now, if only you only ever read children's Bibles, you know, the story of Naaman and the little servant girl, uh, you wouldn't know there was a third scene. There is a third scene that's got a sting in the tail. And here we see grace unappreciated. Grace unappreciated. 
And Elisha's servant Gehazi is disgusted. He says to himself in verse 20, My master was far too easy on naming this Aramean by not accepting from him what he brought. He thinks, this man should have been made to pay. And Gehazi runs after him, spins a yarn, gets a dose of silver and garments, and uh, goes home and hides it. That's his pension sorted out. And he goes off to Elisha's uh, place, whistling a merry tune as if nothing had happened, but it had. And Elisha knows what Gehazi's done, and he calls him out and he confronts him. And more than that, he pronounces a sentence. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you. Gehazi failed to appreciate grace. He thought that Naaman deserved less and that he should be made to pay. He thought his service to God, what he had done, deserved more and that he was owed a pound or two by God and so he took it on himself to get it himself. And instead of being amazed at God's goodness, he's outraged. And this failure to appreciate grace reveals his heart. And there's the sting in the tail. And so I wonder, what does grace reveal about our hearts? Okay, it's one thing to read the, this historical account of an ancient general who never caused us any harm, who didn't bring any hurt into our lives or anybody that we know. It doesn't impact us in any way. And we may think, well, fair enough of God to forgive him. That's all right. But what about Fritz Seugel, the Nazi head of labor and supply? He was described as the greatest and cruelest slave driver since Pharaoh, who worked millions of slave laborers to their deaths in World War II, or Wilhelm, Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, Chief of the Supreme Command of the Armed Forces. His unquestioning obedience to Hitler led to more deaths than people could count. Or Wilhelm Frick, Minister of the Interior, a vicious hardline Nazi, whose mild title, Minister of the Interior, covered up his reign of terror within the, the borders of Germany and the areas that it had, had taken control of. Or Joachim von Ribbentrop, Hitler's foreign minister. Why am I talking about these men? Because those men were on trial at Nuremberg in the war crimes tribunal. Each man was found guilty and each man was sentenced to be hanged. As Ribbentrop was led to the gallows, and asked for any last words by his executioner, he said, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. And he turned to the chaplain, a Christian man called Henry Gericke, who had been assigned to be a chaplain to the condemned men, and he said, I'll see you again. Circle, man famed for being a slave driver and Keitel, the head of the armed forces made similar statements and Frick, the man who had terrorised hundreds of thousands informed the chaplain that he too had come to faith in Christ. Now Gericke, the chaplain, said I have had many years 
experience as a prison chaplain and do not believe that I am easily deluded by phony reformations at the 11th hour. These men had nothing to gain, humanly speaking. No matter what happened to them, they were going to be executed. It would seem that these men, who sent millions to their deaths, are going to be in heaven. Does that outrage you? Are you thinking God was far too easy in those men? You see, someone who's received forgiveness hears this and is filled with amazement because they know that they deserve hell too. And this gives confidence in God's forgiveness. But if we're outraged at this and thinking God was far too easy in those men, those are Gehazi's words. And if we're thinking that, we're in grave danger of standing in Gehazi's shoes and failing to appreciate grace. And there's a sad irony. Gehazi, the man who had so much opportunity, ends up with the punishment of the man who had done such evil. I think, well, that's not fair. Well, why does it work that way? It works that way because it's not about our life in a sense. It's about what we've done with God's gift. And God's gift is his son. His son and what he did on the cross at great cost to himself. And if God's son takes the hell that Naaman deserved and Saukel and Frick and Keitel and Ribbentrop deserved, and he took the hell that I deserved, that's the gift. If we reject the gift, then what's left but for us to pay the price ourselves? What horror awaits those who fling that gift bought at such a price back in God's face? Fail to appreciate grace. Could it be that these men Naaman and these other four, despite their hands being red with the blood of millions, are going to be in heaven. Could it be that perhaps someone sitting here tonight, or any of us sitting here tonight, will perish because we reject the gift? Grace is an amazing thing. It was bought at a staggering price. It is not a free gift in one sense, it is an immensely costly gift that is offered freely to us. So, do we leave here tonight like Naaman, gloriously healed, cleansed and forgiven? Or like Gehazi, outraged at God's forgiveness, failing to appreciate how much we need it? Or perhaps... You've already accepted that gift this evening. You've put your trust in Christ. We too can fail to appreciate God's grace. And we can live as if we're saved by a mix of our performance and Jesus' performance. And depending on our temperament, that will either cause pride or despair. It'll cause pride We think we're some pup. 
Look at how well we're doing. And we will rely on our own abilities. And then we will fall. And then we will dishonor our Savior. Because we have failed to appreciate grace. That it is God who has saved us. And it is God who has made us work. If it causes pride in us, it will cause us to look down our nose at others. As if we're somehow superior. And we're not. We deserved hell. But God chose to save us. Or, if our temperament goes the other way, it could cause us despair. A sense of unworthiness. A sense of being a failure before God. Well, the reality is we're not worthy. And we are failures. That's not to be our focus. Our focus is to be on the grace of God. His kindness to those who don't deserve it. To those who have failed. So our third truth. Grace alone. This rich and beautiful salvation. That is complete and perfect. And needs nothing added. Let's close as we in prayer. Father in heaven. Thank you for sending Jesus. As we saw last night, sent by you, appointed by you, the one who lived the life that we couldn't live and the one who paid the price for how we did live. And we thank you for him. And Father, we pray that you would help us to look to you and to your gift. To be like Naaman and to get down off our high horse and to go to your place of cleansing and to seek forgiveness there. And Father, we pray that you would help us to appreciate the richness and wonder of grace. To realize that what Jesus did at the cross can cleanse any and every sin for those who come to Christ. Father, we thank you that that's the case. For we are more wicked than we ever realized, but could be more loved than we ever dreamt. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.